0: This is History West Midlands.
1: In the 1950s and 60s, the lives of many working-class men and women in the black country improved dramatically as the region's industries became the heart of Britain's post-war economic recovery. Holmes took on a new cheerfulness as affordable appliances such as cookers, washing machines and fridges lightened the physical demands and daily drudgery of working-class women's lives. There was a new vibrancy as colour and modern design became part of the living room as well as the kitchen. And for young and old, for the first time, full employment and high wages created the money for enjoying leisure beyond anything that their parents and grandparents could have dreamt of. Driving these changes were the Black Country's innovative manufacturers, whose products from metal castings to fine glassware were in great demand at home and abroad. Now, these exciting years are celebrated in this programme by social historian and author Simon Briarcliffe from the Black Country Living Museum, who's talking to our publisher, Mike Gibbs.
2: Simon... Why is it important to talk about changes in the kitchen and the house in relation to the black country?
0: I think the kitchen and domestic life touches on so many of the bigger themes of the post-war period because it shows that movement from this kind of old-fashioned life right through to something much more like what we know today with all mod cons. For most people, I think they would have had a pretty old-fashioned life, so a lot more like the day-to-day life that you see in the houses here at the Black Country Living Museum with black-leaded grey and brasses and eating the odd bits of pig that nobody else wants to eat and all that kind of thing. It's traditional black country lifestyle. So lots of people have said, well... I was born in 1945 or whenever, and this is exactly how I grew up, in a terraced house with a pig at the end of the yard and things like that. So that sort of lifestyle was still there. Very few people would have had anything like a fridge or a television or anything that was very much restricted to the much wealthier people. The role of women in the home as well was broadly speaking that, but had been changed somewhat by the war. So a lot of women had gone out to work during the war to make munitions, to do things like a yeah, conductress on a bus or, or whatever that men had absented because they were off to war. So that was the major difference. And at the end of the war, most women were encouraged to go back into the home, it was felt that the best place for a woman was in the home, in the kitchen. And it wasn't always intended in an explicitly sexist way like that, but that was how most people felt. And that was how people like Beveridge, who had penned this report, which formed the basis of the welfare state, that was how he felt as well. He thought it was the most appropriate for women to be homemakers, to be looking after the next generation of the British race. And that was absolutely true in the black country that women were then asked to go back home. You know, it was normal for single women to be asked to leave the workplace once they got married. Even if women were permitted to go out to work, their lives were quite different to men at work. They would be doing just as hard work, but they would be paid probably half as much as a man doing the job. And that was normal. That was accepted. There were still plenty of industries where... Female labour was important, so chain-making, brick-making, lock-making in particular, so for some very black country industries. There's one example of a brickmaker called Nellie Coleman, who had started in something like 1902 being a brickmaker and didn't retire until the 70s. But She used to talk about her husband coming home after a hard day at work, which she had to make dinner, uh, get ready for him after having been at work all day herself. He'd be there fast asleep. She'd make dinner for him and he'd sleep right through it, possibly drunk as well. So after she had her dinner every so often, she used to have his as well and wipe a little bit of the gravy around his chops and say, oh, no, you've had yours. (laughs) Go back to sleep, go back to sleep. Uh, But it was expected that women would not only provide for them but also have the smaller portions. So save the heartiest portions of the food for the men and the women and the children would have to have less. That was just the normal way of things. You also, of course, had to contend with the austerity era. So rationing got even more stringent after the war. So things like bread and potatoes were rationed for the first time. Um, that was for a variety of reasons. A lot of the grain that we used for making bread came from places like Ukraine, which were absolutely ravaged by the war, and there were bad harvests and all that kind of thing. It's not exactly that people were living in poverty, especially if women would be working all the way through the war. It was that things that you wanted to buy were rationed or just not there to buy. So most famously, things like bananas, and people remember the first time they had a banana after the war. And it took until 1954, actually, so nine years after the end of the war, till the last rationing came off, and that was meat and sweets and things, so some of the most kind of potent symbols of rationing. So not only did you have all these black leading to do and keeping the fire going and going out to work and coming back and making dinner for your husband, but you also had to do it all on a tight budget with a lot of shortages. So things were particularly tough, I would say.
2: And between the end of the Second World War and the end of the 1960s, how did the kitchen change in an average home?
0: I think the biggest change is that a lot of these very old, very tatty houses had been knocked down. So the slum clearance programme over the 50s and 60s was absolutely vast and knocked down a lot of these worst places. So if you were having to cook in your back room and heat your bath water at the same time and all that sort of thing, a lot of those houses had been knocked down. Council houses and newer houses on private estates and things like that were much more common. So that was one way it had changed. But even if you still lived in an older house, and of course there's plenty of old terraced houses still in the black country you would start to find that almost every house would have something which makes it a bit more modern. So people would start to bring in bits and pieces they would redecorate with new wallpaper or new furniture. They would include new inventions like formica on the tabletops or a new appliance or something like that. Plastics were becoming usable for the first time, really, on a mass scale, and um, a lot of that was manufactured in the black country, actually. New cookers and new innovations in heating and washing and things like that. Were coming in, so even if you had an old house that needed some love, you might still have some of these new inventions and you still feel part of the modern age. I think your food will have changed. I think so. Although there's a lot of fondness for traditional black country foods like faggots and peas and groty pudding and grey peas and bacon and all that sort of thing, those were still popular, but there was a lot of time saving alternatives that come in. So, refrigerated or frozen food started to become commercially available. If you bought a bag of frozen peas in the 50s, nobody expected you to have a freezer at home. You'd buy the bag of frozen peas because they would last longer than if you bought a bag of fresh peas. Nevertheless, things had started to change.
2: And which companies here in the black country really became the poster children for those developments?
0: Well, a lot of the black country companies, the really famous ones, were exactly geared towards this market. So we'd always specialised in pots and pans. So really sort of basic stuff, but we really started to corner the market in what was called hollowware. So companies like Judge and Jury, which were two competing brothers, actually. <laughs> Eisen's in West Brom and various others. And not only did they produce huge amounts of pots and pans, but they were beautiful and they were started to think about design as well. And Eisens and Judge won several Design Council awards in the 1960s for some of these beautiful mid century modern style pots and pans.
2: The Black Country was always famous for metal bashing, not design. How did design become more important during this period?
0: Actually, the metal bashing reputation is always a bit unfair on the black country. I think it's probably how most people understand it as, yeah, bashing great big pieces of metal into chains or anchors and everything. But there's always been an element of heavily designed stuff where you think about Stourbridge Glass or the beautiful saddlery and leather work in Warsaw or whatever. But I guess it became a good way of making yourself more widely known as a company. They employ professional designers from the world of product design, not just from the world of industry. Some of the most famous examples are those beautiful pots and pans from Eisens, but also Chance Glass in Smethwick, who produced some of the most beautiful glassware of the time. And they called it festivalware, inspired by the Festival of Britain. And some of these big exhibitions, like the Festival of Britain, were really catalysts for people wanting more and more modern design in their homes.
2: And I think you've made the point in your book, Forging Ahead, that many companies in the black country could take ideas through design, through pattern making and to finality. And that wasn't just to do with consumer goods, but very high tech in electronics and these sort of things. What examples can you quote?
0: One of my favourite stories is the Dunset record player which was ubiquitous by the 1960s. It was an affordable, cheap record player, and its big innovation was an automatic changer, so you could stack records on it and drop down and play one after another. And in large part, this was a black country product. Dancets were produced by a company called Margolin in London, but they did mostly the cabinet. All of the electronics and the... Turntable changer, really the, the innovative stuff was produced by a company called Birmingham Sound Reproducers, which I have to stress were not based in Birmingham at all, but started off in Old Hill and then built a huge factory there and then in Wollaston in Stourbridge and then spread out to Scotland and the Northern Islands all over. And they had a huge, huge proportion of this industry. They were absolutely dominant. So the Dan set was designed just a convenient way of putting this new technology into an existing record player body, but it revolutionized the industry because it came at the same time as 45 RPM records were starting to become popular. The singles chart was being released, rock and roll was being invented. So, if you were a teenager, you could go and buy an affordable record from somewhere like Stanton's in Dudley, where you could also buy the record player. And they were very explicitly targeted towards teenagers, which were another kind of invention of the 1950s when you have an array of young people with their own disposable income for the first time. Although, They would almost certainly have had to put a whole pile of it back into the household budget, yet still they had a bit of disposable income to go to the cinema or to buy clothes or records for themselves. So Dansette was made in the black country and played in
2: the black country, if you like. And this was the first time that teenagers had actually become a market in their own right, I guess. How did social life change here between the end of the war and the end of the 1960s?
0: It took a little while to change. I think that's probably fair to say. There was a study done in the late 40s by a sociologist from University of Birmingham, called Doris Rich, who went to study leisure life in Coesley. She interviewed a whole pile of different people of different circumstances and life very much still revolved around going to the pub of an evening, usually the man, the woman stayed at home, perhaps with her children, and did very simple things like knitting or sewing or household jobs or something like that. You could just see some sense that things were starting to change. Some of the older daughters had started to go to dances and the cinema and things like that. And really, those things started to become really, really popular. So if you were a young person, by the late 50s or early 60s, you had a huge range of options, really, of places you could go out with your friends. Dances were absolutely popular. They were the main form of entertainment, also the main place where you could go to meet your partner. And those ranged from huge great events at the town hall in Dudley. It's a little local ones. So we've talked to people who used to use the little branch library in Woodside and the upstairs room there they used to have a master of ceremonies with a record player and he would play old standards and people would dance and perhaps hope to meet a partner there to dance with. As those became popular so too did concerts by more established artists. So those had always been bigger places like the town hall, but with a new generation of rock and roll performers that became really really popular too. So in 1958, I think it was Buddy Holly played in Wolverhampton. Gene Vincent played there. Cliff Richard used to come and play in the Black Country in the 1962. A little-known band played at the Thimble Mill Baths in Smethwick, the Beatles, and went on to do another show at the Delphi in West Brom on the same night before trekking back for another show at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. So those became really popular. People started to imitate their heroes because... If you have a bit of disposable income, perhaps you could also afford a guitar or a set of drums and start to form your own bands. Talked to one chap who had to give most of his money out of his apprenticeship to his mum. But with what he had, he saved up a little bit, bought some um, equipment at Stanton's in Dudley and started to perform with his band. Their favourite venue was the Plaza in Old Hall. And his best memory was sharing the stage with the Hollies in the early 1960s, and that means literally sharing the stage because they had a revolving stage. So (laughs) one band would be setting up in the back while the other one was performing and then the whole stage would revolve and they could swap places. And that kind of rock and roll culture obviously started to come to fruition by the end of the 1960s because young people like Robert Plant and Noddy Holder were growing up in the black country and starting to form their own bands and get into music in their own way.
2: And what other changes were there during this time in leisure pursuits? I think the biggest
0: thing to do if you weren't into going to the dance or going to the cinema, perhaps, was going to the football. And the Black Country was kind of the centre of the world for spectator football at the time because Wolves and West Brom were uh, absolutely at the top of their game. Now, I'm professionally not allowed an opinion about which one's the best. so. But uh, <laughs> Wolves used to proclaim themselves champions of the world because they both won the league, they both won the cup on various occasions. But Wolves had a series of exhibition matches against European opponents, including most famously budapest Honved, which was supposed to be the top club side in the world. And they had that at the, the Molyneux under floodlights. And Wolves won, and it was kind of, that was them saying British football and Wolverhampton Wanderers in particular is uh, absolutely on top of the world. And hundreds and thousands of people would attend matches like this on a regular basis. There's one report from a series of visits that a group from Tanzania made or a uh, Tanganyika as it was at the time and they were chiefs from various tribes in Tanganyika. they came and visited the black country and they they had a dinner at the civic restaurant in Dudley and a trip around the zoo and a factory in Dudley and then were taken to um watch wolves play Sunderland I think it was up at the Molyneux. and they were absolutely amazed not just at the skill of the players but at the fact that they could come out of the ground and find that the match had already been written up and reported and printed in the newspaper that was on sale outside the ground, that they were absolutely baffled. I mean, that's still quite impressive, isn't it? But it's uh, the local Express and Star and the pinks with the sports results and things that were available on a Saturday evening were really, really big business.
2: And people's horizons were expanding, I guess, because there was greater car ownership, television
0: Yeah, absolutely. Car ownership became available to a much larger group of people. If you're younger, perhaps you could afford a motorbike or a scooter, something like that. So obviously those were central to mod culture and things like that, which absolutely had its places in the black country. There was Italian coffee shops in Wolverhampton and Warsaw that were kind of the gathering point for mods. And yeah, TV Chance glass, again, was one of the key innovators in the cathode ray, which formed the basis of the TV mechanism. So, again, something made in the black country.
2: And particularly the role of the black country's contribution to the car industry was important.
0: Yes, absolutely. Everything that you could put in a car could be found made somewhere in the black country. So that might be windscreen glass at chances. It might be a gearbox from Clancy's in the Hales Owen or the Burmid in... Smithick. it might be a chassis from john thompson in ettingshaw in wolverhampton it might be plates from doughty baltimore it, it, the whole of the economy of the black country really was driven by this mass motor industry and having cars become affordable was absolutely crucial to that probably the best example is the mini which was released i think in 1959 designed by an italian designer and mostly built down in oxford but to be able to fit the engine in such a small space, they needed to design and build an entire subframe that was different to anything that before. So they came to somewhere where they knew they could get the expert product design and production. That was Rubrio in, in Darleston. And that was one of their big industries in the 1960s, was producing the entire subframe for the Mini and the wheels as well. So a large part of the Mini that you might have driven around in the 1960s was built just down the road in Darlaston.
2: And the built environment changed dramatically during this time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The amount of houses knocked down and the amount of houses built is in the hundreds of thousands in the backcountry. So I can give you an example from Warsaw. In 1945, the population was just over 100,000 and they had over 7,000 houses short for whole families. So this could be 25, 30% of the whole population was living in an unsuitable accommodation, overcrowded accommodation. They knocked down thousands upon thousands. Warsaw knocked down something like 1,500 in their first tranche of demolitions in the mid-1950s. They built new houses, and particularly they started to build high-rise. By 1965, the council had 18,500 properties in its portfolio that's really the most dramatic change in the built environment is that no longer do you have that old-fashioned kitchen being the norm. The norm is now a modern house, whether it's a council house or a a privately built mucklow home on an estate in Stourbridge or whatever. Most people had somewhere decent to live. These were not space age technology necessarily. So some of the tallest flats in Smellic had coal fires, if you can imagine. So you had to take bags of coal up in the lift. But Most of them were far more spacious and far more comfortable than anything that had been built in the years leading up to the war.
2: And how had education changed in the black country during this period?
0: The big change in education came in 1944. The Education Act passed during the war separated out streaming at secondary age into grammar schools, which were supposed to be for the brainiest kids, technical schools for those who were going on to a more technical work, and then secondary moderns for kind of everybody else. In some ways it kind of entrenched some of the class differences because not only did you have to have the brains to go to a grammar school, you just had to maybe afford the bus fare there and afford the uniform and things like that. So it did kind of stream some people by social class just as much as it did by academic achievement. The second big change was in 1965 when comprehensive education started to be rolled out which was largely championed by Jenny Lee who was MP for Cannock, and that stretched down to Bentley and Darlaston in the black country, so we can claim her as a local. She was married to Nye Bevan when he was alive and was a famously socialist MP. As soon as the comprehensive education started coming, it started to flatten out some of these things, and there was investment in new schools. The first example I could think of is the big new comprehensive school on Hill in Dudley. That was where Sam Allardyce went to school, who later became England manager, and that replaced Wolverhampton Street Secondary School, which was a much older board school from the 19th century, and that was where Duncan Edwards had gone to school. So things got a lot better and a lot more even as well, which is in keeping with the tenor of the times, particularly of the Labour government, they introduced such comprehensive schooling to flatten out some of the inequalities in social life in the country.
2: And to the chagrin of many people in the black country, even today, this was the time when the conurbation took over from a number of the independent towns that have represented the black country from time immemorial. Explain to us the thinking behind that and the impact it had. Well, trying to
0: look at different maps of the black country as it had developed up to 1945 is an incredibly tiring experience, really, because you had no less than 22 local authorities at one point early on. And that ranged from huge places like Wolverhampton, which was its own metropolitan borough, right down to Ambulcott, which was the smallest urban district in the country, only had like 3,000. 000- electors living there that's why you end up if you take a tour of the black country you can see in towns like darleston and west brom these beautiful victorian town halls and libraries and things clustered next to each other in amblecut they used to have the meetings above the fish in so rather than um, any sort of ground town clock or anything they stuck a clock on the side of the pub but it obviously reflected the size and the scale that they were working with but people were extremely proud of living in particular localities. And that's related to the kind of employers and the kind of work that was there and the kind of specialisms as well. So people were very proud of being from somewhere like Darleston, which kind of led the world in nuts and bolts and fastenings, or from all which led the world in locks and things like that, or from places where there was big employers that you could identify with. So it came as a bit of a bone of contention, I think, when proposals were made to change that which they had been for years right from before the war the difficulty you have when you have this kind of patchwork of different local authorities is that if you're a small one it's very difficult to afford to actually do much in the way of reconstruction or modernization or anything and that's not even to mention that before it's nationalized the electricity districts were different from the gas districts which were different from the education districts which were different from the planning districts and all got very confusing. So. From local authorities' sense, it made a lot of sense to want to rationalise and to slim down. But from the point of view of kind of an urban and civic pride, that didn't go down very well at all. The largest boroughs, which were Wolverhampton, Walsall, and Dudley in particular, and West Bromwich, were always accused of wanting to take over and erase the identity of the smaller boroughs around them. And eventually, under the 1965 Boundaries Act, those 22 small boroughs were incorporated into just five metropolitan boroughs of Wolverhampton, Warsaw, Dudley, West Bromwich, and Warley. And later on, those two would be refined a bit and become what we know as Sandwell today. And still, people are very angry about it 50 or 60 years later. And it caused a great deal of anger at the time. There was campaigns. People used to hold posters up like Bilston for Bilstonians. And you still argue about where the real borders of the black country were. So one lawyer for... Riley Hill used to say that it's not really in the black country and therefore really shouldn't be incorporated into a a black country borough, should just stay as our own. So people were really, really attached to that. Nevertheless, the Boundaries Act was passed by um, Sir Keith Joseph, who later became Margaret Thatcher's housing minister, I think. And he kind of waved his hand over this hole and completely reinvented the map. And yeah, it still hasn't died down.
2: And sitting here in the Black Country Museum today, how do we still see that spirit that led to the opposition and all of these arguments demonstrated now?
0: Well, there's definitely still a lot of local pride. One of the things you always get when you talk to people who remember living in the area in those periods is how busy and bustling the town centre was. And a lot of town centres could have an awful lot of pride in their vitality and the amount that was going on around them. And of course, that's not quite the same anymore, because a lot of retail has been taken over by online shopping or by Merry Hill, which is, of course, on the site of what was the Round Oak Steelworks. So people's attachment to their localities has changed. I think people feel a lot more attached to some of them to maybe going into Birmingham, if you want, a day out than they ever would have before. Going up to town in 1950 was, you know, going up to Bilston or to Wolverhampton, if you were really exotic <laughs> I think what has happened is a black country identity has emerged out of this period. It's always been recognised that there is commonalities between someone from Warsaw and someone from Stourbridge. But there's also a lot of a great deal of difference. And still, I think if you live in Stourbridge, Warsaw is a bit of a foreign land and I'm sure vice versa. But I think there's a great deal of more emphasis on the things that we have in common across the region since then, precisely because of the decline in local attachments and some of the decline of the identity of the black country as an industrial region. And actually, I'd say the 60s and 70s were really the start of that. We have organisations like the Black Country Society being founded to preserve the history of the black country as a region. The Black Country Museum was first proposed in the 1960s by librarians in Dudley, although it didn't open until a few years later. But Those sorts of organisations have really fostered a, a sense of pride in the region. And that's now more common than I think than pride in your locality. And of course, we've got our black country flag, which is not without its controversies, but it's a real emblem that people have a stake in the black country now, not just as a Suburb of Birmingham, and that's probably the most important thing I can say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and your book, Forging Ahead, captures this time. Now, here at the Black Country Living Museum, you're capturing the same period in a new area of the museum, also called Forging Ahead. Just tell us a little bit about what's planned and when people will be able to visit. Mm-hmm.
0: the research for this book came out of our plans for what we're doing here at the museum. And it's one thing to say that your research has turned into a book. It's quite another thing to say that you're building a whole town out of it. Uh, But that's essentially what we're doing. So if you come in a couple of years' time, it'll all be complete. We're starting to be open from next year. And we're building basically a new town centre to represent the black country in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. And also an industrial area. And you'll also notice that the rest of the site has changed somewhat as well. In particular, up the top end, we'll have a new visitor center and things like that. So we wanted to tell some of the industrial stories. So we'll be representing a foundry and a brickworks and a drop forge in an industrial area to symbolize some of those industries that were really at the heart of it. So you'll be able to see things being cast. And then a town centre, which will contain shops and civic buildings, a mixture of buildings that are being moved here brick by brick in the traditional way we've done, and those that we're not able to move because they're either being used in situ or they're long gone, but we think are important to the story of the era. So the biggest building that's being moved here is Woodside Library, where we used to have dances upstairs and library books downstairs. And that's actually a really important story because Dudley Libraries, under which it came, was a quite a pioneer in introducing things like paperbacks and records and children's clubs and things into that Country. There'll be shops like Stanton's, the record shop. There's a Martian Baxter's butcher's shop. There's a hairdresser from Tiverdale. There's an Army and Navy store from Stourbridge that was run by Mr Langer, who was a German prisoner of war who was interned in the Black Country during the war and allowed out to work while he was here. Eventually loved it so much that he came back after being repatriated and uh, set up a shop selling Army and Navy surplus that was an institution in Stalbridge for many years. So we'll be representing that. A co-op to talk about moving into the era of self-service and an infant welfare centre to talk about the advent of the NHS and what that meant for mothers and infants. There's some big stories there, not least that that's a building from Lee Road in southwest Wolverhampton, which you might recognise as... Enoch Powell's constituency that'll be set in 1961 when Enoch Powell was Minister of Health so there's lots of complicated stories that we need to get our teeth around there but um, we're really looking forward to being able to share that with the public.
2: Well the books are a fascinating read and I'm sure that the new area of the museum is going to be just as fascinating. Simon thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
1: You can read more about this fascinating story of the post-war black country in Simon's book Forging Ahead, Austerity to Prosperity in the Black Country, 1945-1968. to It can be ordered now at our website www.historywm.com or from Amazon. You can also watch Simon's documentary film which includes unique images from the Black Country Living Museum photographic collection. It's available now on our website and on YouTube.